Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're talking about whether we need to keep testing primary school children for COVID. As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion, tweet us using the hashtag medicalminefield or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk. Eve, it's an intriguing question. Should we stop testing children? I had no idea that it was so widespread until I got a letter from a reader last week, which... I thought was quite upsetting. It was quite disturbing, wasn't it? And a very young child as well. A very young child that had been tested nine times, I think, in 11 months by, well, at the request of their nursery school. And this kid had got more and more upset with each subsequent testing. And the parents said that the only way to get this kid to stay still for the swab up the nose, they'd been instructed by the testing team to basically put the child in a sort of headlock. And we, we did some investigations, didn't we, even? We've, we've seen the headlock that uh, nurses are supposed to to put kids in. And it's, it's all quite disturbing, well, really. And you think, why do they have to test these little ones in that way if they don't want to be? It does seem pretty unnecessary and quite horrific, some of these images. It's a very, it's a funny grey area because actually there isn't any official guidance about how you're supposed to go about testing a one or two-year-old. Which, year again, old. I didn't realise, you know, a lack of any guidance. And I mean, the last thing we heard was that the schools, primary schools, were no longer supposed to routinely test. But I know it's still, that's still going on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So primary school children are no longer subjected to mass testing. So lots of tests every week for asymptomatic children just to make sure that they don't have COVID, which many people might be doing in workplaces up and down across the country. But campaign group, us for them, says it is going on, don't they? And and these people are tracking the way that COVID rules and restrictions are being implemented in schools. and, And they say... You know, very little kids are still being tested routinely. Parent groups are saying that they're hearing from seven or eight parents every week who are very, very concerned by the mass testing programmes going on in their their schools and and also nurseries, so very little children who are exempt from having to have a test after they've been in contact with somebody with COVID. They're having to do tests too. And they're doing this presumably because they don't want to have outbreaks in their school or nursery. But this comes at a cost, distressing the kids. But there's major disruption too because every time they flag up a positive case, presumably they then haul kids out of school. They might not be even be ill themselves and for, um, for in, in the cases of nursery it's actually a huge financial cost to the parents because the parents still have to pay for that daily childcare fee but yet the child oh, yeah, is off school and waiting for the result of a pcr test and experts we've spoken to say that it's not necessary and that people have been calling for this for quite a while to stop testing children for covid and especially now plan b is being axed we're essentially moving towards a much more normal way of life. There's going to be no more isolation for anyone by the end of March. Exactly. And the reason for that is because, as we've seen with Omicron, we can have very high levels of infection in the community, that people aren't getting ill in the way that they were, the vulnerable aren't as badly affected. You know, there isn't that level of fear. You know, I know my mum says that, age 75, 
that she knows quite a few people who've who've had Omicron now, despite being triple jabbed. And, uh, you know, no one's been particularly ill. Well, as I know from my own Omicron saga, oh, yes. um, <laughs> for most of my illness, well, I can't even say illness, I wasn't ill. I had a cold, basically. But you were never vulnerable, obviously. I was never vulnerable, obviously. But I think this kind of speaks to the bigger picture of if we now are in a situation where we have 90% of the population who have antibodies, we have a much milder variant of COVID, are we telling people to test themselves ridiculously and isolate when they have a cold? Well, we don't. I mean, we don't do it with anything else. And there are some mm. much more now. There are some much more serious things that you could get. Absolutely, really. I and mean, it's, it's not to belittle COVID in any way, but and I guess the subject is pertinent with children because the risk of the test for children, especially under three-year-olds, is potentially quite. It's quite serious. I spoke to a father who said that he had to kind of stop his little girl from wriggling, and he, by mistake, obviously, accidentally pushed the swab up too high oh because the little girl's head was kind of. What happened? She had a horrible oh. nosebleed. She was crying and screaming, and and I think it is very traumatic. Awful. Well, look, you've got a parent on the line now who's going to give a first-hand account of just why they think this really needs to stop. Yes, on the line now is Mark Ward, who went through a really horrible testing experience with his two-year-old daughter, Tilly. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened to Tilly? Yeah, of course. So, essentially, we were sent to get a PCR test so that Tilly could attend nursery again if, if she was negative. And on the way to the test centre in our local town, I noticed her starting to show signs of distress in terms of as we got close to the test centre, so not even in sight of it, she started to go, no, 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 and really show resistance to essentially knowing what was going to happen. And for us, this was the ninth test in 11 months. The ninth test? Yeah, ninth test in 11 months, yeah. Yeah. Um, It was obviously based on if they have a high temperature or a continuous cough, they they have to do a PCR test. Otherwise, uh, they obviously can't go back to nursery. Every one of those nine tests, were they because Tilly had experienced symptoms? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, essentially it showed two of the symptoms that, that the guidance that the government provides nurseries with, if you like, that essentially means that mm-hmm. if they've got those symptoms, they can't come into that environment until they show a negative result, which obviously... You know, I'm totally for reducing the spread and and looking after people. Um, so we totally get that. It's just the process itself that w- was the basis of the trauma. Right. Okay. And then, so what happened when you got Tilly to the testing centre? Yeah. So as we turned the corner, and she can see the testing centre. You know, it's it's quite obvious. It's got kind of floodlights. It's uh, the big white portal cabin NHS buildings. She just simply started screaming from that point forward and completely uncontrollable she knew what was coming she knew that she was going to i guess have some sort of invasive process carried out on her again yeah there's nothing i could do to calm her down and then lifting her out the car she's kind of kicking and screaming from that point and then as you go into the test center obviously i i don't expect the test centers to be you know warming and welcoming but for a child that's been in that environment nine times in a row it's not exactly the most calming environment unlike many children hospitals or children wards Uh, and so she just screamed the whole way and essentially for us and many parents that I've spoken to you know I've really done a bit of research around this and just checking my own sanity that it's not just me or our own our children there's a very small percent that seems to be 
okay with it but upset by it but there's a very large percentage of people I've spoken to that have the same which is essentially you then need to kind of restrain your child uh, and till he's just over two you need to restrain them to be able to actually carry the test out because obviously you can't touch it you can't touch any other surface it has to purely be in contact with with the nose in, in the case of children not not the throat so essentially she's kicking and screaming I have to and this sounds awful and you know even explaining it it makes me quite I can feel my heart rate going and you know it's it's not it's not the nicest thought but wrap my wrap my legs around hers if you like and and essentially put her in what I'd describe as a headlock mm. to be able to to stop her do, wriggling yeah because previously I think a couple of tests ago maybe the seventh or sixth she wriggled so much that she put her head down whilst I was taking administering the you know the, the swab up her nose and it caused a massive nosebleed and then she was bleeding and crying you know and it just it just gets worse and so we've I found from that experience it's better to really restrain her rather than injure her and you know you've got eyes nearby and and I guess it all sounds quite uh, quite dramatic and actually it, it really is it and it's definitely causing a level of trauma that I'm uncomfortable with as, as a parent and then essentially what happened was she was so beside herself and upset that that she vomited twice um, and obviously you just I guess the nasal cavity touches the kind of area of the throat that would cause a gag reflex so but this was this was 20 seconds after I'd administered the test she's crying so overtly and so distressed that she's then been sick has this happened before that she's been sick and had this extreme reaction no this is actually the the first time but that the last three times so I guess test seven eight and nine she's had the same crying screaming reaction and obviously because she's been been sick I I kind of said to the the staff there look I I just need to get her out of here like she's not going to calm down until I take her out and you know, I've done the test. Can you give me something to wipe this up? And and I need to get out of here. And yeah, it's not until about 10 minutes afterwards that she started to calm down. And, and even then, she's not she's not my biggest fan at that point, you know, for those 10, 20 minutes. And, and now I recognize that any time we go like near her nose or or anything like that, she's quite, she's quite weary of it, really, to be honest. And she definitely correlates taking her temperature to potentially that leading to something else because she doesn't want you to take her temperature anymore. Gosh. Whereas it was never a problem before. You know, they, they almost did, kids almost enjoy that kind of thing sometimes, mm. but now she knows where it could lead. Mm. So taking her temperature is, is challenging, to say the least. It's an incredibly distressing um, experience, I'm sure. Have any of these tests been positive? Has she ever had COVID? None of the tests have been positive, and yet... We are one, you know, very convinced that in the February before the pandemic kicked off, if you like, we were away on holiday and yeah, in an area that essentially once it kind of became uncovered that turned out that had COVID in that area. So she definitely had it early on, but hasn't had it touch wood since then. And she was pretty poorly with it then for kind of five days, um, but, but all manageable at home. But no, none, none of the tests have been positive and therefore led to us believing that she's had COVID or not. And so, Mark, what do you think is the solution then? Do you think that she shouldn't just never never be tested, that two-year-olds and toddlers just should not be tested? Well, 
I'd be really keen and I've tried to research certain things and as you probably know that to get hold of specific data is quite difficult around COVID. I'd be really intrigued of what the impact on children has been, you know, how many have really suffered, not been able to manage it at home, the same as the normal flu. But but I guess to answer your question specifically, I just think for me the the solution is there must be a better way to test under fives. And I'm not one for, you know, I'm ex-military, I'm, I'm a big fan of key workers, public sectors, the investment the government making in uh, public health, etc. I'm not one for kind of asking people to stretch a budget. I just wonder if there's even a better slash cheaper way to test under fives that doesn't cause, one, the short-term trauma, but I am starting to wonder and notice what the long-term trauma is. And I think in other parts of the world that they do various ways of testing that are probably less invasive. And I, I don't think, you know, if you can imagine if all adults were asked to be put in a headlock to be tested, it wouldn't happen. So why should that be the case for children? Why should we have to go through that to test our children? I, I don't see why that is justifiable and sustainable, um, regardless of where it shifts next. Mm. When you say long-term trauma, Mark, I thought it was interesting you mentioned the long-term trauma of these tests. What do you mean by that? In my job, I know a little bit about psychology and, and the brain and essentially our brain scans the environments for threats, right? It looks for these threats around us and it, if it's triggered, it goes into protective mode, fight or flight. And if enough stimulus has happened enough times, the repeated stimulus, so like testing, and that therefore Tilly's brain frames that as a threat to her you know and fight or flight hence she's in flight right she's in flight when that's happening it's not it's not averse to think that it could result in her being resistant to any kind of procedures and then you know the brain is a clever thing right it remembers it remembers environments where we experience trauma and you know being ex-military I've, I've worked with and around people with PTSD um, and I'm not necessarily saying that's what's being caused here but I definitely see correlating traits of the environment of the testing centre is a clinical environment, and, and obviously rightly so. It looks the same as a GP. It looks the same as a, a GP waiting room. It looks the same as, you know, an administration room. And it wouldn't be too challenging to think that she might start associating the GP, hospital, any clinic environment to the potential of essentially having some sort of invasive procedure carried out on her. And particularly because it's quite compounded, right? You know, it's nine tests in 11-odd months. Uh, it, it lends itself to more risk of her developing some sort of long-term trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Mark, thank you so much for spending the time explaining and talking to us today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Oh, poor Tilly. Poor Tilly. I mean, it sounds extreme, you know, this talk of long-term trauma and PTSD and all the rest of it. But I, I you know, I, I do believe it that there's... Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be setting kids up mm. for a lifetime of associating having tests with it being awful. And yeah, I mean, just... And horrible psychology. for the parent. And horrible, horrible for the parent. parent. Absolutely. But I guess the bigger picture is, is not, you know, I mean, although it's awful, I know my godson says he likes having the swab. <laughs> Oh, does he? <laughs> he does. He says it tickles his brain. Well, I know that my niece finds it very distressing. She's two. And she oh, really? Finds it really I think maybe my godson's a bit weird, which is brilliant. Chip off the old block. <laughs> but um, the disruption that positive COVID cases and isolating people who've been in contact and 
this mindset causes that's the that's the real issue and if we were in a situation where it was an unfortunate reality that children were having to go through this because really what it was doing is saving you know hundreds and thousands of people from dying of this disease that they're not going to go spread it to people but we're not in that situation anymore well we've got someone on the line now who will give us a bit of insight into the realities of that dr alison pollock clinical professor of public health at newcastle university thanks very much for finding time to talk to us Um, we're talking today about testing in children and specifically primary school age children and, and toddlers. We were approached by a reader who said that their toddler was very, very distressed. They'd had to test this uh, youngster nine times in about 11 months and uh, they felt this was entirely unnecessary. And it would seem that you agree. You don't think we should be testing kids this young for COVID. Could you explain why? So we need to differentiate between testing, which is screening healthy children, which is going on in primary schools and secondary schools or children with mild symptoms, and then testing when it's part of a clinical diagnosis, when it's the doctor that's asking for the test or ordering it. And that's been the big problem all along. The government has confused those two. We've never had tests outside of the health service like this before. And we've never had tests that have rolled out to the whole population in an indiscriminate way, including children, without actually evaluating the harms and the benefits and the risks. And the problem with these tests is they've not been evaluated and they're causing great distress, as you say, to children and to parents. There's no science or evidence behind them. And we have no evidence that actually testing your child prevents or stops transmission. So we're now two years into the pandemic, and this is quite extraordinary um, that the government should be even issuing guidance on testing. I have to say that testing is voluntary, and really schools and nurseries should not be requiring or mandating tests from children. But the reason that they do it is because they don't want to have outbreaks, I presume. Um, I'm I'm sort of speaking for for nurseries. I I don't know why they are Mm. doing this when they're not being told to by government. Uh, but, But they're presumably trying to stop outbreaks in schools. And isn't this a good way to do so? Well, as I said, there's absolutely no evidence that A, prevents outbreaks or B, stops transmission at home. All it does is create a lot of upset and also anxiety for the children because it's very, very unpleasant having this test. But doesn't it, I mean, if you pick up all the COVID cases before they get a chance to get into school, so if you're testing the kids regularly, don't you immediately (laughs) alleviate the outbreak in, in a way? Well, you would think that would be the logic, but then we should have the evidence and the proof that it doesn't, and we have none at all. And the problem is the test is really quite a complicated process and it's not a good, perfect test. And in fact, it's not a very good test um, because it's not a test of infectiousness. It really depends on who's doing the test. And it would be much better, as we have done, as we always do, if you said to parents, if your child is sick and unwell, you keep the child at home until they get better. One of the whole tragedies of this pandemic is the way children have been really victimized in many ways. They've been told that they're vectors and drivers of transmission, which is absolutely not true. And they've actually been subject to very unethical procedures, which includes testing and masking in schools, for again, for which there's no evidence. So I think we really need to take a serious look at this. We should never have implemented this in the first place. 
And certainly, I think parents and children are quite right to say, no, they're not prepared to have these tests. If you look at the statistics at the moment, children of a primary school age and younger are among the highest or the highest in terms of infection rates. So surely being more vigilant with this age group is a good idea. And, and also, you know, don't they then go on to, doesn't the infection get move up through the age groups? You know, they give it to mum and mum gives it to granny and such like. Isn't that, is, that, is that no longer a worry now we've got vaccination? I don't know what statistics you've been looking at, but it's actually the older um, age groups, 18 and 30 to 45 year olds, who've been mainly got this infection. So I don't know where you're getting the statistics on children driving this up. Uh, Professor Pollock, just to clarify that, I've just been looking at, according to the latest ONS data, the third highest amount of infections are in primary school children. So the issue is, what is a case? And is a case actually an infectious person? The tests are not tests of infection and the cases can be both asymptomatic and symptomatic. Now, we know that most children do not even have symptoms or if they do, they're very mild and they're not coming to any harm. And if they're asymptomatic, they're far less transmissible than adults, uh, than those who are very symptomatic because they carry much lower viral load. So there are a lot of unknowns, but we do know that children have very mild infection. They're mainly asymptomatic. They're far less likely to be transmitting. And we haven't seen good evidence of more outbreaks happening in schools than in the wider community. And if there is a prevalence of infection, they're simply reflecting what's going on in the wider community. But I think the really key issue is that there is absolutely no evidence to show that mass testing like this and asking children to test actually reduces transmission or prevents infection. And that's a key fact that people need to keep in their head. Uh, never mind all the arguments about what if it does this or what if it doesn't do this. That is the key issue. There is no scientific evidence or proof that repeat mass testing or testing children like this and asking parents to test their children actually prevents transmission. It sounds a bit like, or maybe there's a bigger picture comment here, that it doesn't matter if the majority of these kids have COVID or not. Well, I, I'm, I'm not commenting. It's of no consequence. Well, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I think for the majority of children, it will be of no consequence. Clearly, for some children, they will get nasty infections. But actually, there are other respiratory viruses which are much more serious in children. So a very good example of that is respiratory syncytial virus, which actually kills children every year, and they end up in uh, intensive care units, meningitis, for example. So there are other much more serious diseases for children that we really have to be cautious about and vigilant about, and yet we don't have tests and we don't routinely test for these. So I think this is why it's very important to put testing back into the hands of the clinicians and back as part of a clinical diagnosis. And I guess as the wider community is vaccinated and we have, for instance, I heard the other day a, a boss of a care home provider saying they wanted lockdown rules and isolation rules changed for care homes because although they had outbreaks now, this most vulnerable group who were very badly affected during the first wave before we had vaccinations, he, he said no one dies of COVID anymore. No one even gets particularly ill. So I guess we are in a, a new phase now, truly, 
of the pandemic and and you know people need to realize that as you say if someone's very ill in hospital they need to know if it's covid potentially but otherwise it's of less consequence now Yes, well, people do still get ill and are admitted to hospital and there are still deaths from COVID. But as you say, it's not reflected in the very high caseload. So what we're probably seeing is that this virus is what they call transitioning to being endemic. It's here, it's going to live amongst us. But what the we hope is happening, it appears to be happening because we aren't getting this huge surge in intensive care cases or deaths, but what appears to be happening is that we've got population immunity through a combination of a huge amount of infection, especially infection that took place in December or January this year, and also vaccination. Although we know the vaccination is very short term in its impact. And so a lot of people who are being vaccinated are now getting the infection. But in a way, they're getting less severe infection. And what's happening is that their own immune system will now be primed as a result of of the infection. So they will have memory cells. So the next time that infection comes around, that that should activate what's called their B cells and their T cells and then help to create the antibodies to fight off the infection. So, and, it, and what we do know from studies is that the reinfections tend to be rare and much milder, although of course we've seen quite a lot of reinfections in December and January. And so eventually, one of the hypotheses is that this virus will circulate to become much more like a common cold virus, or more seriously, it could be like a seasonal flu epidemic. We're probably, we're not at the end of this uh, epidemic, and it may be that we get some more surges over the next year or two years, but uh, we are establishing a lot of population immunity. Actually, largely it's going to be happening through infection, actually, but helped greatly by vaccination in the early stages. Professor Pollock, can I just ask whether you think that in the near future, so perhaps even by the end of this year, we're going to see a situation whereby actually it doesn't matter whether you know if you have COVID or not, and it doesn't really matter if you have COVID, and and actually finding out your diagnosis is, is kind of neither here nor there, unless you're ill enough to end up in a doctor's surgery or in hospital. Well, I think that's a very good um, potential scenario. What we really need is um, COVID back into the clinical diagnosis, and we have got surveillance systems, as we do for flu. And then we would have local public outbreak control teams, which would decide which are the vulnerable groups, where we need to have contact tracing and isolation and testing. And we wouldn't have this huge, expensive centralized system, which is largely privatized. And we put that back at the local level, which is what we've been doing for hundreds of years, actually. So this is really for, you know, for the last hundred years. So really, we need the local public health measures. They need to be local. They should be targeted. And it should be very much left to the public outbreak, uh, health outbreak teams to decide when cases are serious, when an outbreak is happening, and when we need to isolate contacts. But this mass isolation of contacts that's been happening and this mass testing really has to stop. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Uh, Professor Alison Pollock, thank you very much for finding time to talk to us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, The Podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. 
Find us at mailplus.co.uk. And I suppose the bigger picture is how long do we keep testing adults and, you know, how long is it going to be a concern for, for knowing anyone has COVID? Um, as you say, are we transitioning into a stage where it's almost not important for most of us to know? You know, you have your own uh, slight personal experience of this, I, I, I believe. Sorry. Listeners, I have to say that throughout this pandemic, Eve has come in once every fortnight saying she's got a bit of a scratchy throat and she's convinced it's COVID. Eve has had more tests than I think anyone else in Britain. Um, and, and finally, you struck <laughs> gold. You struck gold last I week. I got a positive. <laughs> you got your positive. Weird, ding, ding. Yeah. This was a year ago. That would have been very insensitive. But now I think we can say it. Yes. No, absolutely. It's not too soon. No. No. But you were, I mean, take me through it. So you had the scratchy throat on the Wednesday so after New Year's. So I think my no. saga is an example of why the testing system doesn't work perhaps as well as it should do. I I went to a party on New Year's Eve and Brave. and found out a couple of days later that somebody who was at the same party tested positive for COVID. At this point, I didn't have any symptoms. And then I'd say probably on the third day after the party, I developed a very slight scratchy throat. And obviously being the paranoid weirdo that I am, I believed it was COVID instantly. And... I was a bit confused about what to do because I did a lateral flow test that I had in my cupboard and the test was negative. So I thought, oh, well, I probably don't have COVID then. But the sore throat kind of persisted. And this is where there's a bit of a grey area because you're only supposed to get a PCR test for symptoms if you have one of the three COVID symptoms. So that's a continuous cough, a fever or a loss of taste and, and smell. And you had none of those? I had none of those. But I knew that Omicron has led to cases whereby people suffer runny noses, headaches, common throats, common cold, basically. So I thought, ah, I may actually have it again, being the paranoid widow that I am. I thought, well, it may actually be COVID, even if I don't have the official symptoms. So I went and got a PCR test and right. the PCR test came back positive. Yes. But I was still testing negative on the lateral flow tests a day two days after I tested positive on the PCR test. And it wasn't until... Are you still with me, listeners? <laughs> stick, <laughs> stick with me. On day five, I tested positive on the lateral flow test. So I had had a number of days prior to the positive result on the lateral flow test where I had COVID, but I wasn't infectious because I wasn't positive on the By the test. time you tested positive, did you have scratchy throat? Did you have any symptoms? I'd, I had a very, very slight runny nose. My scratchy throat had gone. Brain fog? No, I didn't have any brain fog. Just no, brain. no more than normal, yes, brain you mean? Frog. No, um, brain, no, yes. <laughs> the brain no frog. <laughs> what? Brain frog? Um, I was very tired. I was very, very tired. More so than I have been in a very long time. I'm tired. But it it was a different tired. Was it? Because I am. I do get tired often. Maybe I have it. But well, <laughs> get a PCR test. <laughs> Who knows? But the point is, why was I off work? What was the point? Well, you weren't really off work. You were I isolating working, plus isolating, working. Yes. But why was I not able to go out of my house? Would you have given COVID to anyone? Probably well, not. Well, I didn't give it to my fiance, who I live with. Or your mum. Or my mum, who I shared a changing room with. It was around about when I got my positive PCR test. Which should be, by all accounts, the most infectious point. Absolutely. Just before you develop 
symptoms. Even and I, your symptoms I tested positive on the lateral flow test way up until on my 10th day, which is supposedly the last day of isolation. I was still testing positive. So who knows? Is COVID even real? Is it even real? I mean, does someone just stand there when I'm asleep and draw the red line on the test? <laughs> I, I, at one point, I thought that was happening. It's not me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point of this story? The point is, testing's rubbish. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, in some cases, obviously, if you are vulnerable, if you're around vulnerable people, it's important to know whether you are going to pass something on to somebody. However, yeah, I mean, there are situations where I might feel like it was a good idea to do a test. So but even still, you know, bringing my mum up again, she's just not worried like she was Mm. anymore because she knows that that threat is gone. I think we can make the system a lot simpler for people by just saying, if you feel ill, stay at home. Also, you know, back in the days pre lockdown 2020, we were in a situation where you only got a COVID test, if you remember this, if you ended up so ill, you were in hospital. So I had a few friends who were really ill, but obviously not ill enough mm. to go into hospital. And so they never know whether they actually had COVID, although they had every symptom of COVID. They were in bed for a month, the whole mm. lot, but because they were never taken to hospital, they couldn't get a test. And I mean, ultimately, you know, we should perhaps move back to that kind of a system I suppose. I think it's a really interesting question to ask what benefit does it serve knowing whether or not you have Covid in this current climate if you have incredibly mild symptoms or Mm. or no symptoms whether you're worried about passing it on to somebody else is is a different thing now because if you did pass it on to somebody else the likelihood is they will be vaccinated and they will be protected too. And more broadly I suppose not thinking about Covid quite as much as we have been for the last two years, which will be a huge relief. It'd be nice to be able to think about something else. Absolutely. And with that, I think we should wrap up. I quite agree. You can find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, opinion pieces, videos and everything else. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.